Hello, and welcome to the first episode of The Burning Issue, which aims to examine the current state and future of energy recovery. My name is Luke Walsh, and I'm the editor of EndsWasteOfBioEnergy.com. I became interested in waste management in my teens while working on a bin lorry one summer in Essex. We collected commercial waste and dumped it in a huge landfill in Pitsy with no attempt to sort or recycle it. I always thought that this was the wrong approach and have since found energy from waste is the best solution for waste that can't be recycled. But is this still the case? I'm going to speak to leading figures in the sector to try and find out. Today, I'm with Suez Recycling and Recovery UK Director in External Affairs, Adam Reid. Hello, Adam, and thank you for talking to me today. Hi, Luke. It's an absolute pleasure, mate. Adam joined Suez in 2017, bringing more than 20 years of experience in the waste sector as an academic, researcher, local authority officer and consultant. Is that a fair, if a bit brief, summary of your career so far? I think you've covered all the bases. I mean, it seems to have been a busy 25 years, but I've kind of dipped in and out. But it's mainly been municipal waste, those 20, 25, 26 years. I think every job, has, has, you've learned something, haven't you? So when I was in research, I was answering big academic problems about policy failure. That was my, my PhD started, policy failure in the waste sector. And, and th- then I was, you know, local authority was a little bit... How does this work in reality? And then you started to see that the public have a role to play and oh, that's a variable that you don't always factor in properly. Then I got into consultancy because I like to answer questions, you know, particularly for other people. They were like, how does this, why doesn't, how can, and and a lot of that came back to writing strategies. How do we move away from landfill into energy recovery and recycling? So I started to look at making policy work. And then, you know, the last five years, it's been putting all that together at Suez and going, well, how can we help government? And how can we make sure that our customers are on the right journey? Because, you know, we're in transition and this is not an easy journey. I think we'll we'll talk a lot about policy and the changes we've got, especially in the UK government a bit later. But I can't have someone like you from Suez on and not talk about Suez Mark II or Little Suez. Maybe you could tell us what it was like from the inside. I mean, it was difficult for everybody because one minute you're part of a large global operator and then the next minute an even bigger global operator, you know, wants you to be part of their machine. And and, and I I, I get that. But the CMA involvement, you know, we were never quite part of anything. And I think a lot of projects kind of stopped or stalled and the bulk of the staff have just been getting on with the day job because that's what you've got to do they're operational but you know those of us that are are working behind the scenes have been busy getting data into the cma busy answering questions busy putting material together so you can work out what what the future looks like and i think we've got a bit of clarity now but there's still process to go through so this this isn't finished just yet was there any a point where you thought maybe suez might have been broken up even more there's always an option depending on who buys. And, and I think all the time that Veolia wanted us, I think that it was clear that they wanted us, you know, in, in its entirety, whether it was the UK or, or global, because we had complementary facilities and geographies and everything else. And, and so I don't think that was ever on the cards. And when we were then potentially going to be up for sale, you know, until Macquarie came in, I, I think there was always uncertainty because... You know, you don't know who who's in the mix. I I don't think Macquarie were looking to to break us up. I think they were looking to you know to enter the market, and I, and I don't think New Suez or Little Suez or Suez Mark II or whatever you want to call them in the media, um, will be looking to do do similar. So I, th- I think you know the, the the portfolio is what it is and and growing hopefully. Ah, that's really insightful. Thank you, Adam. If things had worked out differently and you'd not gone into waste, where do you think you'd be now? 
This, this is a tough one, isn't it? Because it's a long time ago. I, I mean, I came into the waste industry for the first time when I was 16. Um, and, and I did one of those summer jobs where I was counting the number of people that were going into public conveniences, of all things, to determine the, the cost efficiency of running free public t- public toilets. From there, I went into the Notting Hill Carnival and I was licensing facilities and, and, and helping with the cleanup. And I think, you know, it was in the blood. You know, you might argue that I'm I'm second generation waster because my old man was a, was a dustman. Um, well, almost uh, ahead of waste management anyway but um if I wasn't in the sector I, I think you'd go right back to, to, to where it where it all started with me I, I was a very keen sportsman so if it hadn't have been for a, a really bad um knee injury I probably would have continued a sporting career through Crystal Palace's um development squads and who knows maybe I'd have been playing lower division football for a few years but by now I'm 48 you know let's not let's, you know let's not hide I'd, I'd have needed a second career I'm sure of it so if I'm honest I'd have either been coaching sports because I love you know interacting with kids and, and I, I love sport or I'd have been a geography teacher because geography's always been you know right at the core of everything I do which kind of explains why I've ended up in the waste management industry I get to talk about the environment I get to talk about people and I get to travel it, it ticks the boxes what, what is an average day like for you at the moment there's never been an average day is, in an yeah. Adam Reed world <laughs> <Is there? laughs> um, I, I'd, I'd like to say I, I could paint a picture that makes sense but it doesn't I mean look I get up early I'm one of those classic sewers members of staff that doesn't need to sleep so I'm up at four-ish, I'm off doing some yoga, I'll go for a run, I might go for a swim, then I'm at the desk from eight o'clock and it's, you know, it's, it's emails, it's prep for presentations, it's team meetings. And then post-COVID, I'm getting back out and about again now. So the conference circuit's on again. It's, you know, it's October. So there's lots of events. And I suppose I share my time between being at events and engaging with government. We've got MP visits coming around our sites again now. Um, we've got briefings going into senior civil servants. And I, and I suppose for me, it's about helping shape the way that they see our sector and giving them a hand, I think, with some of the ideas that they might have about good policy and bad policy. It'd be wrong of me to say that I can change their mind, but I'd like to think I nudge in a, in a nice way in the right direction about the things that probably work for the sector based on our experiences. You've talked obviously about politicians visiting sites there. There's a lot of turnaround of ministers and even prime ministers recently. How are you keeping on top of that? Thankfully, I've, I've got some good consultants that work alongside us that are keeping us briefed on particularly some of the new cabinet members, because let's be honest, they're quite new to politics as, as well as senior politics. So getting to know them is important before I you know, have my first meeting. We're scanning the press. I read a lot, you know, whether it's online or, or even some, some hard copy. You've just got to be prepared. Long before we knew who the new leader was going to be for the Conservative Party, we already had briefings lined up. We already had an idea about, you know, the differences between Rishi and, and Liz. And, you know, for us, it was about understanding then where some of our policy needs might fit into their agenda. Is it going to be climate change led? Is it going to be green recovery? Is it about jobs? Is it about the economics purely. I think we already started to change some of our messaging and narrative when we recognised, you know, Liz Truss was, was looking like the strongest candidate. She's got a slightly different feel to her than, than Rishi Sunak. So, Do you think her take is probably slightly less environmental than, uh, you know, the, you had David Cameron come in and he pushed the green stuff. And since then, it's been pushed back slightly. Where do you think we are now? I think they've all had 
know, a strong green ethic in there. I mean, you know, you've only got to look at Theresa May. She's now chairing the Aldersgate Group. She's a firm, committed environmentalist. It's just sometimes politics gets in the way, doesn't it? I think, you know, Liz Truss spent her time. She's done her apprenticeship, so to speak, in the Department for Environment. So you'd like to think she understands it, even if at the moment the key priority is probably to get the economy rolling. And, and, and I think, you know, I'm a pragmatic environmentalist. I think we have to have an economy that functions. She's trying her best to get things moving, but we can't allow that to happen at the expense of the environment. It's certainly not medium term and long term environment. Talking about expenses, Suez is obviously in the middle of developing some carbon capture technology, which does require a lot of money. And if the government's not prioritising the environment as much, how do you feel that's going to go? Government will always put money into innovation an opportunity. But there's never enough government money to go around. So all of my career in waste management, you've seen government pump priming opportunities, but not everybody gets it. And so whether we get funding through CCUS, Bays, or whether we don't, I think, you know, the issue for us is can we create a good business case? Because if we can create a good business case, then the opportunities are there for us to work with our partners on long-term solutions. And let's be honest, CCUS and CCS are not short-term, are they? I mean, they're probably four or five years away in terms of operations. They're going to be on facilities that are going to operate for 25 to 30 years. So that business case is a bit like putting together the business case for the EFW in the first place. It's got to be sound and it's got to be robust. And if we can do that, we're confident we can find the right partnerships to make it work, even if it isn't heavily sponsored by government initially. It's interesting you said there the difference between CCUS and CCS. I think you were the first person that said the carbon capture and utilisation to me. Are we going the right direction? That's a really interesting question. And I think the sector and carbon capture more generally doesn't talk about this as openly as perhaps, you know, they should. Capture is a bit transition in my eyes. And it's a bit like the way we talk about EFWs now, to be honest. They're a transition technology towards the circular economy. They they enable you to move out of landfill over a period of time and not have this knee-jerk reaction where you just hope everything lands on day one. And I think carbon capture is similar. You know, we can put stuff in storage for a period of time whilst we're working out what the end markets need to be. Because I honestly believe we've got to have utilisation. Otherwise, you're just parking an issue for a another generation to deal with. So utilisation has to be part of the long-term plan and part of the long-term delivery. You talked about transition there, and I think we are in an interesting time. You've got moratoriums coming in in Wales and Scotland, potentially maybe England in the future. What do you think? I don't think a moratoria is is an answer to anything unless you're absolutely certain that you need no more infrastructure. And I understand where Scotland and Wales have come from, albeit that they're both still exporting material over the border. So they're not self-sufficient in the truest sense. So it's all well and good saying we don't want any more in our country, but it's okay if we move it over the border. I think that, that creates a bit of tension on those border locations. A moratorium in England? I just don't think we're there yet. I think we're several plants away from replacing some of the older facilities that are maybe three, four years away from either being at the end or or being ready for some form of upgrade. And so realistically, the projections around landfill diversion, we're not going to go immediately tomorrow and go recycling 70%, are we? It just doesn't happen. So I think there is room for a few more facilities as part of that transition plan, but it is a transition plan. It's not just keep on building EFWs. You mentioned there that we're a few facilities away. Now, I think there's a few facilities we've seen recently with Virador taking over the Tilbury project. Consented projects are more valuable now. Obviously, Suez has projects like Darwin that is consented, but you're also thinking about biogas there. Could both now be more valuable than they were a few months ago? 
You're right. I think I think the market's an interesting one at the moment, and and, and having consented facilities is a key part of that equation. But also having feedstock security. You know, when you look at somewhere like Darwin, Darwin was always associated as an EFW with the the large Lancashire residual treatment contract, and so. We've got facilities in the northeast and we've got contracts in the northeast that are being let at the moment. It's a constant flux. So we might have a number of consents. We might not build on all of those. And it'll be exactly the same with the biogas. And it'll be as we develop our AD portfolio, you have to be able to secure the feedstock. We're not just going to open these facilities as merchant and hope. You've got to have good business case. So we will look at many more sites than we will need because we're conscious of the right sites being really important because they're the ones where they've got feedstock availability or likely to have good access for the feedstocks that you need. From a business point of view, that makes perfect sense to me. But then you've got the NGO side, like the UK Without Incineration Network, and they come in and say there's so many tonnes of consented projects around, which means we're leading to overcapacity. But you've just said that obviously a lot of those projects won't go forward. So how do we explain that to the wider public? I think it's difficult for the energy from WASEC to convince the general public of anything. And UK <laughs> Win have definitely got the moral high ground, whether I agree with them or not, because it's an easy conversation. Look at all this consented time. We just have to be totally honest and transparent. And I hope we are when we have these conversations. I mean, the ESA have been working for the last, what, two years now on being very clear about what is consented versus what is live and when might sites be built and if so, how large and, and actually which other sites might close. And I think we've just got to continue as a sector to be as, as transparent as we possibly can these sites you know meet the environmental emissions criteria so like we can be hammered all we like about their pollutants but they're under the target level so we have to accept that we're doing the right thing and i think from a tonnage perspective none of us would build excess tonnage into our system because all that's going to do over time is mean your system becomes inefficient as some of that tonnage disappears so we're not building a sector that's going to be dominated by efw for the next 50 years because we know that you won't need half of those plants for the last 30 let's say there's nothing worse than an empty plant or a plant that's running at 20 percent capacity it's terribly expensive for us to run them and not be efficient in feedstock control Industrial action in the waste sector in particular, but also in related sectors such as ports and trains has caused disruption. Do you think this is going to continue going forward? I do. And, I, and it's a shame. But I, I, again, I understand where they're coming from. You know, I, sometimes industrial action seems to be the only way to be heard. And it's not really our sector that's the problem here, is it? But it's, it shows you the issue with how you negotiate with trade unions and how sectors are, are respected or not respected by their peers. Industrial action on transport, particularly the rail, was a real headache for us sewers but but the sector at large because we move an awful lot of tonnage on the rail avoiding hundreds and hundreds of lorry movements on already congested roads so for us to not have access to rail for two or three days at a time and suddenly it's like being at christmas isn't it there's only so much storage you've got in an efw before you've got to move material one way or the other and yeah the bunkers were getting full but you know we had contingency plans in place and i think you know the, the one thing i will say about all of these industrial actions has been we've had early heads up and we've you know we've been part of contingency planning with DEFRA. DEFRA have had meetings with us the rail sector and and others to really understand what's going to happen when and what the ramifications are we've been able to keep certain lines open overnight to keep a minimum operation in place and i I just think that the wider stakeholder group should be applauded for the effort that's gone in behind the scenes to make sure that we don't end up with waste on the streets and a a napoli-esque type situation and on the subject of disruption we've got brexit 
is it still having a big impact on the waste sector or have we seen the worst of it? Probably seen the worst of it in terms of manpower. A lot of staff who were worried about Brexit or were from Europe and, and decided to go home are gone. And we're still struggling to recruit fully as a sector, I would suggest here. And why that is, I think, is an interesting point. The British public don't necessarily want to work in waste management. It's far from the the desirable number one choice on anybody's list, even if you're unemployed at the moment, or so it seems. But we're changing that and we're trying to work hard on showcasing the benefits of working in waste and resource management. The, the hours might suit if you're dropping kids off at school or picking them up, for example. It's quite local for many people. It's not those long lorry journeys that are going up and down the country, but that might be a benefit to some. There's an opportunity to improve the um, image of the sector, but Brexit is still it still left us with less resource available in the way that we used to run. And I think COVID just stretched us further. So the two in tandem were a real strain. And, um, you know, I think the sector did really well to keep everything flowing. And generally sites were open and, and we didn't have the mountains of rubbish. And we, we continue to operate good quality services. But there's plenty of opportunity for new people to come into the sector. I can promise you that. Recycling rates slipped to 44% from 45.5% earlier this year. If recycling is going the wrong way, is energy recovery the better solution or is it encouraging more energy recovery because we're not recycling? That's an interesting conundrum, isn't it? I think, I think we've seen stagnating recycling rates in England, particularly for six or seven years, to be honest. It's kind of been fluctuating. And that says a lot to me because I think, you know, we talk about the 590s rule or the 690s rule, this idea that for all of the packaging put on the market, 90% of people putting it out for recycling 90% of the time with 90% accuracy, i.e. not wishful recycling. And we've then got 90% efficiency in our plant and you've got 90% efficiency in the reprocessing plant and you end up with a recycling rate of about 57 if you want to hit 70, 75% recycling rates, you need 95% efficiency at the five stages. And three of those stages are about consumers. They're nothing to do with the people that handle the material. So if we're really serious about hitting recycling rates of 75%, we can't go, it's not about EFW, it's not about residual waste. It's everything about public consumption and service provision at the curbside. We have to get that right. And government has got to make it as easy as possible for people to do it right as often as possible. And then the system will, will make that material flow. And that's when we start to see the drop in the demand for, for energy from waste. But only after we've moved out of landfill, because there's still 10, 15% of the material still going in sort of landfill direction. So if that's the case, there's still a buffer that EFW is going to probably suck up in the short term whilst we're getting the new consistent systems of collection right. And whilst we're introducing the new target materials, because if we don't bring those into the system as well, we're limiting the ability to hit 75%. It's interesting you mentioned consistent recycling around the country. How do you see that going? Because we've got different systems in, in the same cities. Will we see united systems? I mean, the government consultation, which of course is you know good, a good two years in the making now, but you know we believe once government settles down now that you know we should see some light on this one in the run-up to Christmas. We should see every authority and every business being offered the same collection of materials. What we won't see is necessarily an identical set of bins or colours or even a consistency on the frequency of the collection maybe, apart from uh, weekly food waste. So in reality, you can recycle the same thing wherever you are, but you might have to put it out on a Tuesday in a red box when you're at work and on Wednesday in a pink box because you're at home that variation probably will continue forever because government are not keen on stipulating to local government but i would still prefer a greater level of consistency across the whole of the uk 
may I say, not just England, because people are fluid. People move, people work, people travel, pe- you know, pe- people see their in-laws. Our, our geographical boundaries are not, not hard and fast, are they? And therefore, confusing people with lots of variations on a theme is probably just a way of, of, of us getting the wrong material in the wrong container on the wrong day. And that's the kind of thing I don't want to handle because I hate the wrong material in the wrong container on the wrong day. I think you've hit the nail on the head there. It's just making it easier for people. We talked earlier about CCU, and that might well be the future of EFW. We'll have to see. But let's talk about technological strides that didn't work out. Gasification, for instance. Suez was one of the many who got fingers burnt with the technology. But what do you think went wrong? Was that just government subsidies? The new technology demonstrator program, which is where some of the gasification plants and the MBT plants, let's be honest, you know, they've suffered as well. We've seen a few technologies, haven't we? They haven't quite delivered. I think the program was, and I was involved in it as a consultant, so, you know, I'll speak freely. I think it was designed with the right intention, which was to help prove that some of these alternative technologies that the risk averse public sector would never have picked as a desirable winning tender, let's say, just would have been, you know, considered too risky and therefore opted out. It enabled a few of them to come to the fore. So it then helped them through planning and uh, because, of course, it was difficult to evaluate new technologies through a planning system or a regulatory system, to be honest with you. And I think all of that was a good intention. The drive to move out of landfill quickly and the fact that government wasn't really keen on EFW meant we went alternative with a big A down a number of routes. And and I've got to be honest, some of these technologies have taken longer to embed than others. And and the the gasification experience that, you know, that we've had, our plant at Shepparton, Surrey, is is now operational. It's gone through, you know, its testing phase and and its commissioning phase. And we've learned a lot of lessons about feedstocks and variability and and the nuances of operating under different conditions from, from, say, our EFW. So I think it's a necessary part of any transition, isn't it? If you're serious about moving out of a series of traditional technologies to to new, you're going to have to go through some experiences where you're, where you're learning and those things may not work or they might work and get better with time. And, and I think probably gasification is one of those that we know it can work. The real question is, does it deliver all of the benefits that you want moving away from landfill or is it, you know, chemical recycling is probably the new kid on the block now. And there's a lot of attention in how do we make that work. And, you know, the thing about chemical recycling is it's very similar to gasification in many ways. And actually, you target the same material. So maybe that's, you know, we're finding a technology now for a material stream. And that's the right way around. It's interesting you mentioned chemical recycling there. Do you see that as competing with EFW going forward? Because obviously you need a lot of the same feedstock or are they complementary technologies? I think they're complementary and I think you could even co-locate them potentially depending on how we capture material. We don't really want plastic films because they're high calorific value going into our EFWs because that would actually limit the amount of tonnage we could handle because of that, that fine balance between tonnage and calorific value. So ideally, no, let's let's get the value out of them and ideally let's, let's make them circular. So a chemical recycling process in theory you can put those those plastics back straight into you know the plastic system again and again that's got to be better than us burning them because we know that they contribute to the carbon load of our EFW so if if they're not in the EFW then we've got less of a carbon burden to worry about at our sites which is only good for the sector because ESA Suez you know we're all pushing for you know decarbonisation of the waste sector by 2040 and and some of us are going faster and some of these technologies are going to be key but so is getting the material in the right place. Interesting you mentioned the decarbonisation do you think we're on track for that? by 2040. You've seen things like Copenhagen, because of their energy from waste plant not getting funding for its carbon capture technology, of them pushing back their 2025 target, which in fairness was very soon. 
how are we doing towards 2040? I think 2040 is still deliverable, but it's a big ask. And, and, and it's a big ask when policy is still slipping. Because some of the initiatives that we've banked on in, in the, you know, the sector strategy, if you like, you know, involves plastics not going to, to EFW. Well, that only happens if A, you capture them and B, you've got alternative technologies. Well, neither of them have progressed a great deal in the last two or three years. Doable, yes. Becoming harder to deliver, yes. But n- none of us are shying away from the fact that we've got to get there and we can see a way of doing it. There's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of it's going to come down to our customers playing, doing the right bit. And, and if everybody lags, if we start seeing contracts being extended and, th- and then let six, seven years down the line, we're going to need a massive hockey stick of improvement in the last few years. That could put a lot of pressure on the system to adapt. So I'm hoping a bit of guidance soon, some legislation in place you know, in the next year, and we can actually get some early movers on the go and we can learn some of those key lessons quickly. This is the final question I'm asking to everyone on the burning issue. What's the question you'd wish I'd asked you and how would you have answered it? This is a tough one. If, if I was on a desert island, I'm not, I'm not sure what, what my answer would be, but I've got two, depending on what mood I was in. So I'm going to give you them both. So you almost asked me, is there a role for waste management, particularly energy from waste? in a circular economy and I would answer here we go yes because I think we're nowhere near a circular economy so the energy from waste is the transition we've talked about that before it it enables us to go from linear to elliptical to circular and I think EFW is a key part of that so anybody that says stop EFW tomorrow and we go circular doesn't understand how you change economic models you've got to move the system forward and we'll help buffer that and over time you get some new infrastructure you close some old infrastructure and the whole system just jogs along the other question which is probably the one that I'm answering most commonly these days um, partly because I've just launched a new report or about to launch a new report it would have been live when when this goes live on um, the stuff of life so this is how do we tackle the consumption problem here in the UK because actually my sector exists because we buy too much stuff we buy stuff that isn't designed to go round we buy stuff that's in inherently disposable and for some reason we've become wedded to buying stuff because it makes supposedly makes you feel good and, and so we've got a report coming out because we're quite keen to sort of nudge this so it's a debate i've been having with, with defra for about three years now i don't think their waste prevention agenda really goes far enough their waste minimum you know waste prevention plan was really lacking in substance if we're serious about moving to a 2040 decarbonisation agenda, if we're serious about 2050 being UK, you know, net zero full stop, surely consumption has to get reined in. And I'm not saying don't buy stuff or you can't own stuff. What I'm saying is, but buy the service, you know, buy the experience, you buy the product, but not the packaging, you know, the refill, the repairables, the reusables. I just think this is a step change that we've really got to grapple with. And, and here's, here's, you know, somebody that's got an EFW fleet, somebody that has got recycling facilities, but actually the future has to be, we want stuff to go around much better, much more efficiently than it does now. And that way you might need less of a waste management uh, provider, but what you'll get is a partner that looks after your resources. And I think that's the kind of future that I think this sector is ready for is, you know, we'll manage resources and we'll help do that in collaboration with logistics companies and brand designers and, and, and everybody else that's got a stake in that transition. That makes perfect sense to me. I thought for a while you were perhaps talking yourself out of a job, but there's, Never. there's, there's, <laughs> there's always going to be a need for <laughs> Perfect. Um, Adam, well, thank you very much for your time and insight. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Luke. I've enjoyed it. 
Burning Issues guest this time was Adam Reed. It was written and presented by Luke Walsh and is produced by Zarina Dean. Thank you very much for listening. And if you want to learn more about energy recovery, go to the site endswasteandbioenergy.com where you can sign up for our free newsletters and maybe even take out a subscription if you want to. Goodbye.